Welcome to Chasing American History. I'm David Cross, your historical expeditionary, and together we are going to explore the nation's origins. Join me as we dive into the very marrow of our past in order to learn not only who we were, but who we are. Thank you for joining us at Chasing American History for this very special program today. This program is brought to you by Indispensable Leadership. Indispensable Leadership uses the lessons of history in a way that will let you transform your personal and professional life. Now, they give seminars at Valley Forge, usually three-day seminars, and they can also come to your place of business or your club with their all-star faculty. They not only tell you about history, but they have exercises, and they really help people learn history in a completely different way that allows them to apply the lessons of history to their own life. You can contact them at indispensableleadership.com. I am very excited to share with you today the interview I had with the great author David O. Stewart. David Stewart has written a number of tremendous books. His last book before the one that just came out that we're going to talk about today is Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. This is a book that studies James Madison by looking at the different partnerships he had, his partnership with George Washington, with Hamilton, with Jefferson, with his wife Dolly, and with James Monroe. For years, I've been using his book, The Summer of 1787, as a text in my course on the making of the Constitution that I've taught on behalf of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. But this book is especially exciting because it is about the very subject that we've been dealing with most recently in Chasing American History, and that is George Washington. This new book is called George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. And if you want to know why another book on George Washington, well, just listen to the interview. He has some really important things to say. Let me just read you a couple things that have been said about this. John Meekham writes, David O. Stewart brings his characteristic grace and skill to the portrait of the political George Washington, liberating the most elusive of our founders from the mists of myth to discover a shrewd and approachable human being. At a time when politics seems beyond redemption, Stewart's book is a welcome reminder of the possibilities, however imperfect, of the public arena. Nathaniel Philbrick writes, By focusing on the political genius of George Washington, David O. Stewart has produced an important new portrait of our first president. As Stewart demonstrates time and time again, with vivid prose and a wonderful sense of pacing, great leaders are also great learners. In this time of division and turmoil, this is the book we need. Finally, Edward G. Langell, who is a friend to this show. He's been on uh, three times, and I hope we're going to have him in the future as well. Edward Langell had this to say about the book. David O. Stewart's innovative and important study of George Washington's political career succeeds because it places his successes as President of the United States within the context of his whole life and times. The most fascinating thing about Washington is not how he was great, but how he became great over the course of a dramatic career, compellingly chronicled in this book. So I invite you to sit back and enjoy this conversation with David O. Stewart. I want to talk about the five subjects you split things into, which begin with war. But before we talk about the Revolutionary War, I want to talk to you about Washington's period between 1759 and 1775, which you write a lot about, because you talk about this stunning rise that he goes through then, and it's something that a lot of people miss about Washington. So if we could start by just talking about who is George Washington in 1759, and uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, he's a prominent guy. Uh, he's been head of the Virginia Regiment for several years as a young man. Uh, and uh, he's uh, messed up. Um, he's been given a very difficult job. Uh, fighting the Indians in the forest is pretty well hopeless. I mean, British never got good at it, and the Virginians weren't any good at it either. Um, the Indians were very good at it. Um, so he stays long enough for the fall of Fort Duquesne, which was renamed Fort Pitt, now Pittsburgh, which was the key moment for the Virginia frontier. 
Um, but he knew he had very uh, significantly burned his bridges. Um, he had uh, alienated the royal governor of Virginia. Uh, it, it couldn't be a secret to him that he alienated him. He'd written a bunch of nasty, sarcastic letters to the man. Uh, he had ticked off the British military establishment. Uh, he had uh, jumped, the, tried to jump the chain of command several times and been caught at it. Um, and uh, pretty much knew that a military career was not going to happen for him then. And that had been what he wanted. So he needed a new, he needed to turn the page. He needed a new chapter, whatever metaphor you want to use. And uh, I felt like you could see the wheels turning in his head through this key period. And he decides, okay, I have basically lucked into Mount Vernon. Uh, his brother, Lawrence, who had the property, had died. Um, his widow had been willing to lease it to George on very easy terms. So that's going to be the basis for my next chapter. Uh, I will become a prominent planter. I will become politically engaged. He had always shown symptoms of wanting to be involved in the political world. And he set out to marry a rich woman. Uh, that was essential to his success. He didn't have any significant money. Um, and he needed it uh, to retrieve Mount Vernon and to build his own career. And it's kind of astonishing. He seems to have courted Martha Washington and won her hand in marriage in two weekends. Um, we don't have a complete picture. Maybe there was more, but that's all we can see. Uh, and that becomes the basis for this next chapter of his. He has also, uh, in this last year in the Virginia Regiment, run for the House of Burgesses, which is the beginning of his political life. Uh, he had a previous candidacy, which seems not to have been uh, intentional or somehow messed up or he lost heart or something when he failed, but he runs again in uh, Frederick County out west, but he did own land there, which made him eligible to run, and he wins quite easily. Uh, and those two steps, uh, committing himself to Mount Vernon, to developing it, and heading out into the political life at the House of Burgesses, were the beginning of his transition his rebuilding his life. John Adams says, or he asks, would we ever have heard of George Washington if he had not met Martha Custis or not married Martha Custis? So I'll ask you that. Would we have heard of him if he had not married Martha? You know, I think he was resourceful enough that he would have found someone else. Um, but he, he, he really had no effective role to uh, significant success without the money that a rich woman would have brought him. Uh, it was not, uh, you know, you couldn't open a, uh, you couldn't do an IPO with a startup company back then. Um, you had to make money the old fashioned way, uh, either inherit it or, or, or marry it. And he did not inherit it. Uh, so he, uh, he took the other road. Now, you're right. Washington studied his flaws. From a young age, he struggled against his own nature. His early missteps might have crippled the prospects of a person with less dogged commitment to self-improvement. He ruthlessly suppressed qualities that could hinder his advancement and mastered those that could assist it. So what are these qualities that he's subduing during this period before we get back to, uh, back to him being in positions of power? Well, his worst quality, which he, he certainly knew, was a terrible temper, um, and he fought against that his whole life, uh, and it would get the better of him. It had gotten the better of him during the French and Indian War, and that was why he had messed up so badly, and uh, he would lose it. It, it. When he lost it, no one ever forgot it because it was really a, a bad temper, and he was a large man, so it was kind of uh, impressive. Uh, but he mostly did get it under control. Uh, and his other 
qualities that he worked on uh, are not necessarily bad qualities, but qualities where he felt deficient. Um, and principally, they were uh, a very limited education. So he became a very uh, active reader his whole life, trying to improve himself. And he worked hard on his writing, his, his written work, as he young boy was embarrassingly bad. Um, and he, he improves, and by near the end of his life, he's actually quite good. And also uh, speaking, uh, he was not a good speaker. He had a poor voice. Uh, we don't know quite why. There's a suggestion that he had lung ailments uh, as a young man and that they left him with sort of a breathy voice. Uh, so he could not engage in the sort of debate and badinage that would be the mark of a Virginia politician. Uh, you think of Patrick Henry or Richard Henry Lee. These were gifted uh, speakers and, and wonderful uh, debaters. Uh, so he had to find another way. Uh, and, you know, it's almost a workaround, uh, you know, rather than establish a reputation as a great debater and statesman on the floor of the House of Burgesses, I think he decided, well, I'll just do the work and I'll do it well and people will notice that. And he became, uh, and this didn't happen overnight, it was a project of, of years. Um, he became a very trusted figure. Uh, he took on hard problems in the House of Burgesses uh, and he, he dealt with them. And uh, I think he did win trust. And, and that is a hallmark of his, his whole career. Uh, he had personal qualities, what we would call charisma today, um, that people would trust him. Um, his size certainly helped. Uh, he always looked good uh, in terms of his clothing. He was very particular about that. Um, and he was a great listener. This is something, uh, I mean, I think effective politicians have to be, and it is underestimated, um, the, the value of, of listening well to other people, both so you learn what's on their mind, but also so they feel good about themselves. You know, all of us, if we have a meeting where we talk a lot, think, gee, that was a great meeting. Um, and, you know, Washington had a lot of great meetings where he just listened to other people. Um, and it is a way to uh, uh, win the support of other people if they think you are hearing what's on their minds. And what you're talking about is what the, the subject of the book really is, which is the political rise of America's founding father. He's uh, people don't like to think about George Washington as a politician, but even as a very young man, he's a politician, right? Yeah, he was in the House of Burgess. He was a, essentially a colonial legislator or a state legislator um, for 16 years, which is several years longer than he served in uniform. Uh, you know, he was a political figure. And then of course he was president for eight years. And, uh, the notion that he wasn't a politician is just uh, sort of silly. Um, but he understood that being identified as a politician wasn't the plus. I mean, not even in the 18th century did anybody really like politicians, um, even though we need them and we need good politicians. So he struck a pose as a planter, a farmer, someone who really cared about that. His small talk was always about agriculture. Um, he wouldn't have any small talk about politics. Um, but what he cared about and what he ended up building his career on was his political abilities. And frankly, as commander in chief of the army during the revolution, um, that job was at least 50% politics. And, uh, you know, even <laughs> I've had many current military officers tell me after a talk about the book that, you know, it still is. <laughs> it's a very political world in a military bureaucracy. So George Washington is going to be nominated to, to be the general. And so what, what you do with your books is you find you, you, you don't, you don't do straight out biographies usually. You kind of choose things that illustrate what you're trying to uh, what you're trying to show. 
And in this book, you chose one of my favorite moments of history, which is Valley Forge. Let me ask you first, why did you choose that out of all the things that you could have chosen in terms of Washington as a commander in the war? Well, my message was that the guy had unusual political chops. So I was looking for the key moments during the war when those were really tested. Um, and there are several, I, there were other opportunities, but it felt to me that that was an essential one. Uh, and partly because there was this, it's a little grand to call it a conspiracy, but it's called the Conway Cabal uh, to move him out as commander in chief and replace him with Horatio Gates. Uh, and historians disagree as to how serious it was. Washington thought it was really serious. Um, and I'm inclined to agree with him. Um, and at the same time, he has to remake the army. Uh, the military bureaucracy, which was built on the fly, um, it, it you know, was all these volunteers and people who weren't getting paid, even if they thought they were gonna get paid. Uh, which turned out to be just breakdown. Uh, and the army was starving. They were sick, they were cold. And he had to come up with a new structure with new support from Congress. And he built his relationships with Congress. And this is completely a political activity to get the support he needed. And it was very clever of him, I thought, rather than try to bombard them with messages from afar, which he had been doing for two years, uh, and which I think he understood doesn't have the power of immediate experience. And rather than going to see them, which he felt he couldn't do because things were so dire at Valley Forge, uh, he brought much of Congress to Valley Forge and he arranged for a committee on the military situation to be appointed. Uh, six con delegates came and spent more than a month at Valley Forge. Um, and, and that was about a third of the congressional delegations at, at the time. And they were exposed to him directly. They were exposed to his people and what they were trying to do. Powerful figures and personalities like Nathaniel Green or Alexander Hamilton. But more than that, they were exposed to how terrible things were with the army. They just couldn't avoid it. They saw it every day. And it broke their hearts the same way it was breaking Washington's heart. And it was exactly what he needed to do. Um, and he got not everything he wanted, but much of what he wanted in order to rebuild the army. And the army comes out of Valley Forge a far stronger uh, force and uh, wins a, a key engagement at Monmouth Courthouse and sets the stage um, for the ultimate victory. Now it also helps the French uh, uh, entered the alliance with uh, uh, America then. Uh, and uh, it, it, that is a critical moment as well. Uh, but the Continental Army was in real danger of becoming non-functional at that time, and, and he figured out a way uh, to save it. And you, and you mentioned three adversaries in your book, which is interesting because it, it, it kind of is a good thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with Washington and the revolution, that half the time dealing with the British is third or fourth down the line because you're not going to have an army to deal with the British if you don't deal yeah. with the first things. And you've got him dealing with the, this this cabal or whatever it is that's weakening his, that, that's def, definitely threatening him politically. But then, of course... You, you, there's no food, and partly I guess that's because of Mifflin just just quitting without telling everybody. And there's food doesn't get to Valley Forge, and he gets there, and he's got this army without uh, food and clothing. And unlike just about any other general I read about in history, it, it's like he's an entrepreneur with his own business. It's like he's got to find food. There's there's no one to contact. It, it, it's a it's something I think we. And military historians are very good at this, of course, but we need to be aware of, which is 
you know, the great generals are really good at logistics and <laughs> finding food. Uh, Ulysses Grant, um, uh, I I've always struck in the Civil War, you know, that he's always criticized for different, you know, tactical flaws and mistakes, but he kept his army together and fed and, you know, moving. And that, you know, that's really what you got to do. And Washington uh, had, had figured that out, that that was the biggest challenge he had. Uh, he dealt with his crises sort of in order. Uh, he, he did get lucky at some, in some sense that the British really went into winter camp during the Valley Forge winter um, and weren't much of a threat. So that allowed him to work on his internal issues. And that involved both parrying uh, the senior officers who were after his position, but also um, re restructuring the army and the supply services so they, they, they would function and, and they did. And can you talk a little bit about Baron von Steuben, sort of the hero of this, this whole thing, um, who shows up? And what I find interesting, I guess nobody tells him to do what he does, but I guess he just sees a need, right? Uh, he, he is recruited by uh, Ben Franklin over in Paris. Uh, I think it was a mutual recruitment. Steuben needed a job. He had never been a general in, in Prussia or anywhere in, in Germany, but he was a professional soldier and we didn't have that many of them. Uh, and uh, uh, Franklin anoints him a, a general and sends him off across the ocean and he shows up and he just turns out to be the right guy. Um, he charms everybody. Uh, he doesn't demand, he doesn't have a lot of uh, pride. Uh, he doesn't demand that he be uh, courted or, or that money be thrown at him the way some of the European officers did. And he's impressed with the American soldiers, or at least he says he is. And he works with them in a way that um, the, the, the American uh, officers didn't. And frankly, it wasn't even a British tradition. Um, I think it was a Prussian tradition that officers would get down and drill their own soldiers themselves. Uh, the, the tradition in Britain had always been that the sergeants do that. Um, and Washington was very impressed with him when he shows up at Valley Forge. Steuben had already impressed Congress and gotten a commission, but he shows up at Valley Forge. He's, uh, he's modest. He, he's not demanding anything. He's looking, he's trying to find a way to contribute to serve. And so Washington puts him to work, uh, training the troops and basic things. I mean, Washington couldn't teach, uh, the troops, the the drills, the uh, line of battle, the way uh, the British uh, would fight, because he had never been trained in all this stuff. So he'd read manuals and he did his best, but Steuben knew this in his soul. And he was an outgoing personality. He was always cursing and caressing the soldiers at once, and he just won their hearts. Uh, he, he was the best show at Valley Forge. The uh, other soldiers would come down and watch him drill troops just because it was so funny. Uh, and it became a matter of pride for the American soldiers to learn how to do this. And it took a couple, several months. Um, and, you know, they never became as good as the best British soldiers who'd been doing it for 20 years. But they, they learned some basic things. I mean, basic things like marching in ranks. Until then, we had always sort of proceeded single file or double file, or just sort of walking. Um, and he, he taught them double time. He taught them how to turn and how to fire volleys. Um, these are all ideas that the American officers had and tried to communicate, but Steuben had a system and he was able to get that system across and he wrote out his drill and it became the drill for the whole army. 
And he says in the, the manual, you quote here, that an officer should, should know each of his soldiers by name, visit the sick, and gain their love, which certainly isn't everybody's way of looking at it, but it seems to somewhat mirror what George Washington is trying to do as the general. Washington had a real gift for inspiring loyalty of his troops. He had done that in the French and Indian War, even though he had been failing daily. Uh, and he did it again. And that was also, I think, the Prussian way. And, uh, you know, didn't insist on this giant class distinction between officers and men. And it fit the American soldiers. Uh, Steuben had this observation that. Um, when he trained French or Prussian troops, he would simply tell them what to do. But with American troops, he had to tell them what to do and then explain why. And once he explained why, they were fine. But they didn't have the same instinct of loyalty or just compliance, discipline. Um, and he didn't resent that. He, he had reasons for everything he was teaching them. Um, so it, it was a great match of uh, personality, expertise, and the need of the moment. And then you write about the decision to have the Battle of Monmouth. There's a lot of people who are opposed to doing anything like that. Charles Lee says, why don't we just build them a gold bridge rather than to stop them? Uh, what goes into Washington's decision to engage in that battle when he knows the French have signed on to help out? Uh, some of it, I think, is the spirit of his own army. His own army has felt remade after Valley Forge and the training they've had. They are fed, finally. They are well-armed. Um, they need to have a battle, is his view. Um, I think some of it's political. Uh, I don't write about this much, but I think he senses that. I, I mean, 1777 had been a very thin year for Washington. He had lost two significant engagements, hadn't really won any, um, which made him vulnerable to this, this Conway cabal that tried to uh, move him out as commander in chief. And he kind of needed a win uh, in order to cement his position, you know, being trustworthy and, and tall, it only gets you so far. Uh, you, you generals are supposed to win. Uh, and I think he also wanted to make a statement to the nation. Uh, you know, it's not quite a nation yet, but to other Americans at least, that this is an army that not only will fight, but can fight. Uh, so it, he, he was definite that he wanted to have a a battle, he understood that he could not have a straight up fair fight with the British, that, you know, if the two armies faced off across in a level playing field, the British would win. His chief engineer is this Frenchman who constantly is telling him, we can't win those, don't do that. Uh, so he is hoping to fight a, a piece of the British army to sort of, the, the British army is marching from Philadelphia to New York. He's hoping to just find a chunk of it that he can have a battle with. And uh, it's, it's in many ways a messed up day. Uh, his plan falls into pieces, but he gets lucky. And you know, lucky is great as a military leader. Um, and he ends up on the high ground, facing off against about half the British army uh, on a brutally hot day. And uh, there, there are historians who call it a draw, but I don't, uh, because he needed a win so badly. Um, and they prevail. They are not driven from their position, and the British withdraw. And that's a win. And it, it makes a huge difference for, for Washington's stature and the Army's self-esteem and self-respect. And a lot of people write about the moment, and you do as well, in which Washington which you have a, a somewhat of a retreat and, and Charles Lee is out there and he really seems to galvanize everybody. And it's the moment where he and, and Charles Lee have words that's going to, to really end to the end of, lead to the end of his career. 
Yeah, it, it is first and foremost a heroic moment for Washington. He's the man on horseback who rallies the troops and gets them to uh, fight and win. And, you know, Charles Lee has been a problematic figure in the Army for several years. Uh, he's very smart. He has the sort of formal training that Washington does not. Um, but he's also endlessly weird. Um, he is trailed by a pack of dogs everywhere he goes. He looks weird. He's sort of an Ichabod Crane figure. Um, and he's mercurial in his disposition. He had been a prisoner of the British for a year before Monmouth. And, uh, and it's very hard to come with, up with an innocent explanation for it. He actually prepares a memorandum for the British on how to defeat the Americans, uh, which supposedly was his side, and, and, but he gives it to them. Um, if it's not treason, I'm not sure what is. Uh, and then he's exchanged for another prisoner and Washington, not knowing, of course, that uh, Lee has been advising the British on how to beat him. Uh, he restores Lee to his position as second in command. And he feels that Lee undermined him the day of Monmouth, that he did not go out and provoke this sort of small scale engagement he was looking for. I mean, I, and small is the wrong word, medium scale uh, engagement. And that Lee just uh, sort of a pass, in a passive aggressive moment, what we would call passive aggressive, just sort of didn't do it. Uh, and it's a very confusing morning when the, the, the commanders under Lee sort of get lost and they're all, they all, get exhausted, it's 100 degrees, and they start withdrawing. And that's when Washington rides up. And he finds Lee, and he basically says, what is going on here? This is not what I said. Um, and at the end of the battle, and, and Lee does do his duty at that point, uh, and, and leads troops during the battle. Um, but at the end of it, Lee is humiliated that he's been confronted by Washington in public that way. And he demands that he be court-martialed, uh, which I think Washington was only too glad to uh, comply with. Uh, and he appoints a court-martial uh, filled with his own loyalists, and they all despise Lee. So Lee is tossed from the army, and he, he actually just dies of natural causes after that. Uh, and, and he's a bit of a footnote in history at this point. Another thing that you keep seeing in your book is where everything seems to turn out exactly the way Washington wants it without Washington necessarily having fingerprints on how it happens. And you say this a few times in the book. And the first time is around this part where you say, well, these were his five. It's almost like Godfather 2 when, when uh, Michael Corleone takes care of all of his enemies because Everyone who had been opposed to Washington and Valley Forge is taken care of one way or the other suddenly is not. And usually he lets a lot of them do the work on themselves. Right. But somehow, definitely, he handles all of those threats pretty quickly, doesn't he? He does. He, he learns. And there's a moment in his career in the House of Burgesses where he sort of sticks the knife in one of his rivals then, a fellow named Adam Stephen, a, a smaller footnote in history. Um, and, and I was struck by the fact that uh, he managed, one thing you suggest, which is he gives people enough rope to hang themselves. Uh, he reads their character and thinks they will uh, do something stupid that will get them in trouble. Um, and he's very deft uh, at having marshalling the forces, reading the moment, and then timing things. So um, his adversaries end up really, it, it's, it's almost like a chess match that they end up with nowhere to go except to sort of confront him in a way they can't win. Um, in, in, in a lot of ways, this is the, you know what you would call a, a, a great strategist. Uh, militarily, but 
I think his his greatest talent was doing it politically. Um, and these adverse forces do just sort of disappear from the board. Um, and he's got his fingerprints on some of them. You can see that, but uh, it's not bloody. Um, he, he, he makes it happen. Of course, when they create that war committee, which is really sort of a slap in his face, a lot of people think in Congress that he may just resign, which maybe he would have done as a young man in the, in the beginning of your book when you describe him uh, more impetuous. And he doesn't do that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. He, uh, The 25-year-old Washington would have gone off in a half. I mean, there's some period in his early years, he, he threatened to resign something like seven times in six months. Um, but he's in his 40s. Um, you know, the sap is no longer rising, and uh, he wants this job. He, he wants to win this war. He is determined. And one of his greatest qualities is his, his determination. And he's not going to be driven out of it just by his own ill temper um, or by being goaded by others. Uh, so uh, he stick, sticks and in, 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 uh, in maneuvers. Uh, and it is impressive to me that he doesn't lash out. Um, he keeps his powder dry. He waits. Um, he, and certainly with the uh, Board of War and the Horatio Gates and Mifflin and uh, Conway, um, he lets them sort of do themselves in uh, and, and just waits them out. You then go on to, to, to the second part of these five things that you go into, which is the nation. The war is won. Once again, there's something George Washington wants, which is a federal government. Um, and what is he doing in his quiet way to, to bring that about? Yeah, well, he's resigned from the Army and gone home to Mount Vernon, and he thinks he's done with public service. Uh, he's celebrated for the resignation, so he doesn't really want to imperil that by trying to come back. So... It, it takes him, it seems to me, a couple of years before the condition of the country alarms him enough uh, to get engaged again. Uh, we don't appreciate that Americans experienced a worse depression in the 1780s than the Great Depression of the 1930s. It really was a terrible time. And... The government was non-functional. We were organized under the Articles of Confederation, and uh, it was a very weak government, and that was on purpose. Uh, we had seen a strong government, which was the British Empire, and we didn't like it. So we created a government that could only levy taxes if, if every state agreed, every state legislature, and of course, they never did. I mean, imagine if we had that rule today. Nothing would ever happen. So. Uh, the government was a non-factor, and the problems were bad. Uh, the states were fighting with each other. They were undermining each other, and we started to have these sort of tax re revolts. You know, Americans <laughs> don't like to pay taxes, and so we uh, were having them. And Washington becomes alarmed, uh, and he, he largely... Um, <laughs> He's engaged through his network, built through the Revolutionary War, really, throughout the colonies. Uh, he knows everybody at that point, uh, certainly the mili former military figures, but also the political figures. He had to deal with every governor uh, to recruit troops. He had to deal with lots of local officials to try to get food. Um, and he sends these letters. And if you got a letter from George Washington, you showed it to all your friends. So he knows that the word is getting out and he starts expressing great alarm about what's happening and the need to remake the government. He's not the only voice saying that. Uh, Madison is agitating heavily for that and frankly is agitating with Washington to get him fired up. Uh, Hamilton as well and, and other figures. But nobody matters as much as Washington. He is the hero. He is the maximum leader, and 
if Washington says it has to happen, and this this is true for a 20 year period in our uh, our early years, if he says it has to happen, most people want to do it. I mean, they just think he's worthy of that kind of trust. If he uh, says so, they try to make it happen. And, and I think the calling of the Constitutional Convention and then uh, its work uh, is really attributable to him. Uh, he, he doesn't do the work the way Madison did, the way Gouverneur Morris did, and, and other really important figures. But for Washington, he wanted a real government with an executive branch. We hadn't had one under the Articles of Confederation with the power to tax, which we hadn't had, and for it to be superior to the states. Those are the three things he had to have. And, you know, he had them before the convention even started. Everybody understood those were the terms on which he would come. So that's, uh, he, he occupied a wonderful position of influence, I think, we don't see him abusing it. Um, and he found ways, non-insulting, non-imperialistic ways to influence events the way he thought the government needed to go, uh, be remade. Even even when it comes to not <clears throat> trying to put a Band-Aid on something, there's a great quote you put on there when he's asked to help out on something, and he says, influence is not government. Yeah, I, I think it was Henry Knox, but one of his friends in New England uh, urged him to come up there and somehow uh, calm the Shays rebels. The Shays Rebellion of 1786 was a very significant moment uh, when common folks were uh, very upset about taxes and were getting violent. And uh, Washington basically said, I'm not walking into that. Uh, I don't have any troops. Uh, I don't have any position. You know, what am I going to do? Well, I'm just going to stand there and tell them to go home. I mean, that's just silly. Uh, and I'm translating his words and paraphrasing them, but that was his position. And you've quoted it right, that influence is not government. So he presides over the Constitutional Convention, and he is, of course, elected the first president. And then he has this job of figuring out what this job is when there's almost no description of what his duties are in the Constitution. Yeah, the presidency was a new invention. Uh, you know, the world had a lot of kings and emperors and tribal chiefs. Uh, Americans had had governors for a few years, but most of the state governors didn't have much power. And the Constitution created some considerable power for the president, and everybody knew that Washington wasn't just going to sit there and be a figurehead, and that he would exercise powers, but he wanted to respect whatever limits were there. Uh, and it's a difficult process. He struggles with it. Madison, uh, who was in Congress at the time, trying to figure out what Congress's role was, struggled with his role and that branch's role. And they find that some things in the Constitution, which was written just a year ago, uh, don't make much sense. <laughs> you know, the uh, advice and consent function of the Senate on treaties, you know, Washington goes to the Senate and tries to talk to them about a treaty he's gonna try to negotiate with major Indian tribes in the Southeast. And, you know, the Senate just wants to debate it. And Washington doesn't want to debate it. He just wants to get their concerns. Well, there's 30 of them. They don't, they can't just say what their concerns are. They're all different. Um, and it's a couple of very unhappy encounters. And finally, Washington says, well, I'm never coming back here again. And he doesn't. And now no president would consider going to cons consult with the Senate ahead of time. Now, the Senate has to agree to a treaty afterwards. Uh, so that part was respected, but the first part it just uh, didn't work. So, and, and, you know, so many things had to be created that weren't in the Constitution. Uh, 
Washington invented the cabinet. Uh, there were heads of departments created by legislation. He brought them together and made them a consulting body. Uh, we now have such a gigantic cabinet, it's over 20 people. I, I think it probably doesn't perform that function much anymore. But for a big part of our history, the cabinet was a critical part of uh, our governing structure, and it allowed ideas to be uh, exchanged, uh, ripened, and, and different perspectives to be brought to a president. Um, and that's an extremely valuable thing. And I, Washington thought it was necessary for him. Uh, and, and, you know, he had such a high powered cabinet, only four men. But when you have Hamilton and Jefferson in it, that you've got a lot of horsepower in the room. Um, I think he really thought that was terrific that he could hear these guys argue um, and he could decide which he thought uh, was making the most sense and take, take two from column A and one from column B and, and develop his own policy. And really, is it, it's the thing that makes him different from all of the other really well-known framers is that Jefferson and Madison and uh, Hamilton never seek advice on, on major issues that they think they know about. They, they, they know. And you've got George Washington, who seems not to just be seeking advice to look like he's doing it, but he really seems to be the kind of person who legitimately wants to ask people and get different uh, points of view on what to do. Yeah, he, he does it through the war with his councils of war, which are endless things. He's always calling them. And he does it again with the cabinet. He doesn't always do what they tell him. And it's not a majority vote. I mean, he decides what he likes that he hears or he decides his own idea. But it is um, a hallmark of, of his career. Um, I had to acknowledge that it was sad, the, the partisanship that developed in his second term, by the end of his second term, he's kind of become a partisan. And I think he's got to be aware of it himself. And that frames what he writes in the farewell address that uh, we have to watch partisanship. Um, but um, it, it is a hazard of democratic government, which uh, <laughs> we still play with. And we've all heard and read the story of the, the famous dinner with Thomas Jefferson. It's a, the room where it happened in the Hamilton musical, written many times. And you look at that with somewhat of a different take. And you know, very interesting that what you say is, you know, at the end of this, there's only one guy who got everything he wanted. Everyone else got something they wanted and had to give up something. But there's one guy who somehow got everything he wanted, and that's Washington. Yeah, uh, there's the wonderful principle of human affairs, you know, cui bono, I can't speak Latin, I don't know how to pronounce it, but basically who benefits? And if you look at the, this big political deal that's struck over where the national capital will be and the fiscal plan that Hamilton has put together, uh, the only guy who gets everything he wants is Washington. And, you know, why don't we think that's important? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we? Uh, and, and, you know, there are some basic things that accounts of this seem to miss, which is um, Hamilton and Jefferson are at this dinner. And I accept that there was such a dinner. Um, they both are working for Washington. You know, they're appointees of the Washington administration. And Madison is the third man in the room. And, you know, Madison is Washington's greatest congressional ally and has been his closest political confidant for five months. I mean, they're all trying to produce what the boss wants. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, he, Washington is sometimes uh, credited with being the progenitor of the hidden hand presidency, the man who's able to influence events um, without showing it. Um, and this seemed like a real episode where, uh, and you can see his hand a few times, it does come out from behind the curtain, um, where he really drives events in ways that others just don't know so much about. I mean, there's a basic event that right before the deal is struck, 
he and Hamilton and Jefferson go off on a fishing trip off New Jersey, and they spend two days on a boat. And if you've ever spent a day on a boat, I mean, it can be really dull. <laughs> and you're going to talk. And you know, he didn't set this up just because he enjoyed their company. In fact, there's not much evidence that he enjoyed either man's company. Um, he did it because he was trying to get his plan, his ducks in a row, get his plan organized so they would implement it. And then they go back to uh, New York and they put together the deal. And I just feel like every piece of evidence you can find points to the fact that it was Washington's deal. The bank, uh, probably the biggest issue in his first term, whether to create that bank. And one of the biggest issues that separates Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. What is his role in that? Uh, he, he played the neutral arbiter on that role, um, largely because, it, well, in my view, largely because uh, banking was not something he knew and understood particularly well. Uh, he dealt with, you know, land deals in Virginia where you paid your money. Maybe you got time, but nobody financed it with a third party. And uh, we only had a couple of banks in the country and none of them was in Virginia. So Hamilton was the fiscally uh, sophisticated person, and he put together the idea. He modeled it on the British system. And of course, Jefferson despised it. He recognized it as an empowering of the commercial classes and the, making us more of a commercial nation. Uh, I think that part of it actually appealed to Washington. He was a guy who was looking ahead. He thought that industrial development was essential to the country. He always supported it and that commercial and trade activity was was so important and we had it to had to encourage it. So he is as a policy matter predisposed to it. And it comes to him as a constitutional issue. Uh, and both Madison and Jefferson, really speaking for agrarian interests, uh, don't like the bank and they say it's unconstitutional uh, and that Congress just doesn't have the power to do it. And it becomes a really significant um, uh, sort of theoretical, uh, political uh, matter of political theory based on the Constitution. And uh, the Attorney General Edmund Randolph writes a memo for Washington asking that he veto it. Washington turns to Jefferson, who he knows is smarter than Randolph, and asks for his views, and uh, Jefferson writes his. I'm, Jefferson's a lawyer, but you know he's not a great lawyer, honestly, um, an endlessly, endlessly smart guy, but uh, he produces the best argument he can in just a couple of days. And then Washington turns them all over to uh, Hamilton and basically gives him uh, the last word. And Hamilton's a fantastic lawyer, and he does a great job, and he basically eviscerates their arguments. And I think Washington was inclined to sign the legislation to create the bank and not to veto it. And Hamilton gave him the ammunition, gave him the uh, intellectual structure that allowed him to explain to Jefferson, you know, I so respect your views, but on this one, I think we part company. Um, and, uh, and, and so he did. And frankly, that issue, uh, constitutional issue, which is the, what, what powers are under the general welfare clause of the constitution, what powers in Congress has never come up in a significant way since. I mean, it, it, it really was put to rest then. Washington has every intent of resigning after his first term and you write that maybe his instincts again were right in terms of wanting to do that. Uh, but how does he get how, how does he get talked out of that? And what are the ramifications of that? Yeah, it's the usual suspects, Madison and uh, Governor Morris, and people he respects. Uh, tell him that the country won't survive unless he's president for another term. And 
I think some of it at least is that uh, there's no obvious successor who everybody loves. Uh, you know, John Adams is vice president, uh, who's most obviously next in line, but, you know, he's a, an acquired taste for a lot of them. Um, and no one is a national figure the way Washington was when he became president. And that was just because of his service with the Continental Army. Uh, so he, he he kind of through clenched teeth says he'll, he'll do it. Um, and I do make a bit of a fuss about his second inaugural address, which is a stunningly unpleasant uh, piece of work. Uh, he It's the shortest inaugural address ever. He talks about no issues. He simply says, it's a great honor to be your president. And if I screw up, you can impeach me. And then he sits down. Uh, and it, it is one time I think he let his ill temper get the better of him. <laughs> he could have done more for the country if he'd been a little less surly. But uh, he really wanted to go home. I think he was done. And I think he could feel the politics turning against him, that they were getting more partisan Hamilton and Jefferson were starting to get out into the world with their uh, ill feelings about each other. And uh, it certainly was true. His second term was uh, a very difficult time. And to his great chagrin, after everyone talks him into staying, everyone else leaves and ends <laughs> up with very second-rate characters. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure he sat there and thought, you know, I I could see this coming and I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't trust my own judgment. Uh, you know, Jefferson heads to the hills. Um, he hates having to deal with Hamilton on a daily basis. Uh, Hamilton wants to make some money, so he finally goes. Uh, Henry Knox, for the same reasons, leave, um, leaves. And he is left with the second string. Um, and he knows they're the second string. And frankly, he stops having cabinet meetings as much because... He really doesn't care that much what they think. Uh, and it's, I, I, I say this meaning no ill will to subsequent presidents in their cabinets, but it is a pattern we see uh, that when you get into the second term of a two-term presidency, the second, you know, the sort of the A team that was recruited for the first term <coughs> tends to peel off and go on with their lives. And, the president is left recruiting uh, less stellar characters. So let me let me finish off with you with what what you pretty much finish off with, which is your chapter called "Wrestling with Sin," and this is this is your discussion of George Washington nearing the end of his life on the subject of slavery, where he he'd gone. There's a lot of course, books written entirely on this subject, but there's clearly a change in his position to slavery as he gets older. And if you could talk a little bit about the complications that gave him and, and how he tried to handle it. Yeah, the, the war changes him until the Revolutionary War. There's not much evidence that he had a lot of angst about slavery. Uh, it was part of his world, and he was trying to get ahead at Mount Vernon, and he this was the labor force that was available. Um, it was not a labor pool of people he could hire, so he had enslaved people. Um, and he was neither a particularly good or a particularly bad slave owner, though by our standards. I, the war changes him in a couple of ways. He's exposed to a lot of people who don't like slavery uh, in Virginia. There weren't that many people like that. But the Marquis de Lafayette, who's a person he has an intimate relationship with, he really connects with Lafayette in a special way. Uh, Hamilton, John Lawrence, often young men, uh, agitate with him over the slavery issue. He also confronts the black soldiers. Uh, he initially won't recruit them. He has to because the British are. And they are suffering and dying for his freedom, for his liberty. And it, it's pretty tough to say, well, you can die for me, but then, you, then I own you. And I think he was really uncomfortable with that. 
he announces he's going to be a good slave owner and he won't break up families and that sorts of, sort of thing. And I think he finds quickly after the war that that's an oxymoron that really isn't a good slave owner. And in the late 1780s, about the time of the Constitutional Convention, um, he tries to develop a plan to escape this condition. He doesn't ever describe it in direct terms the way we would uh, do today. But he, he decides to try to raise enough money to buy the slaves. He's got a complicated situation. Uh, at Mount Vernon, you've got two groups of enslaved people. Uh, there are those that Washington acquired on his own, uh, either a few inherited and others uh, purchased, and their descendants. And it's a bit over 100 people. Uh, and he can free them. He owns them. Uh, but there are more. It's as many as 150 or more who are descendants or original uh, slaves from Martha's first husband uh, and his estate. And under uh, Virginia law at the time, uh, her interest in those people uh, was simply what's called a life interest. She just had their use for the her lifetime. And Washington, as her husband, therefore, was in charge of them un under the laws at the time. But she could not, she had to preserve them for the ultimate heirs of the estate who turned out to be her grandchildren. She had four grandchildren who are not Washington's uh, direct descendants, their step-grandchildren for him. But he has to preserve the value of those slaves um, for the benefit of the estate and ultimately the step-grandchildren. And the only way he can do that and give them their freedom is to buy them from the estate, and then he can set them free. Well, that requires a lot of cash, which he has never had. He's always been land rich and cash poor. So he's assembled some 50,000 acres of land, mostly out west, but uh, Mount Vernon's some 8,000 acres. And, and he tries to figure out a way to get the cash. Now, he tries to sell the land out west. Nobody wants it. Uh, you could just go out and take land in many instances. Nobody certainly intended to pay for it. Uh, he tried to lease out his farms at Mount Vernon, bring in, he, he wanted European farmers. He thought they were better than American farmers, but he got no takers there. I think he had a tendency to drive a hard bargain and not to want to give up his interests unless he could, thought he got value. And so he may have turned his back on a couple of deals that he could have done. He definitely had one big deal that fell apart because the fellow, the purchaser ne never was able to get the money together he needed. And Washington ultimately can't do this. And he spends about 10 years trying to do this. It's not every day, but he is trying through the few friends and people who work for him to make this happen. Uh, and it is only in his last year of life that he sort of faces the hard fact that he's not going to make it happen. That, you know, he's, he's feeling old. He's only 67, not that old by our measure, but... Uh, he's feeling it. He's had a very active, hard life. And he rewrites his will. And he rewrites it so that he frees the slaves he owned, the 120 upon his death. They actually would not be freed until Martha's death. Uh, and that's the provision that's in effect when he dies, uh, which is just six months later after he writes the will. And uh, Martha becomes very uncomfortable with the provision because uh, it means that there's 120 people at Mount Vernon who want her dead. Uh, and uh, being poisoned by your slaves was not unheard of. Um, it happened. Um, so she prevails upon the executors uh, to accelerate. And so by the end of the next year, she, the, the slaves are freed. It's awkward because 
the estate slaves and the, the, the Custis slaves or the dower slaves, as they were called, and Washington slaves have all intermarried. So in a single family, you could have, you know, married people who are have different legal status. And, you know, what are they going to do? Uh, one can't leave Mount Vernon and the other can't. Uh, what, what's the status of their children? If they're, if it's the woman who is still enslaved, maybe they're still slaves. It, it, it's, it's messy. And Washington knew it would be messy, which is why he tried to work around it, uh, but he never did. Um, it's sometimes presented that this was his attempt to rally the nation to an anti-slavery cause. Um, I think he was a hard-headed guy who probably, he would have liked that, but I don't think he thought that was going to happen. Um, I think it was a personal act of atonement that um, he, he says at one time, very early in the process, that uh, he's hoping to get rid of a species of property uh, that he wishes he didn't have, and he hopes it would not be unpleasing to his maker. Um, and I, I think he recognized that what he was doing, owning people, was a sin. And uh, he just, uh, the, the balance of everyday concerns, concern for his wife, for his, his business, he was never able to get himself out of it in a way that satisfied all of his priorities. You've been listening to Chasing American History, and I have been talking to author David O. Stewart. His new book is George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. You can get it at Amazon or in your local bookstore.